0: And welcome everybody to this community of Kensington Unitarians. My name is Caroline Blair and I've been a member of this congregation for um, 11 years now. It's been an upsetting week to live in London uh, with the very ritualistic and symbolic murder of a very young man and the opportunistic nature of it feels as if every racist in the UK has come out to try and make hay. It's been hard to switch on the television, watch the news, or to pick up a newspaper. But we have also, in the last week, seen individual acts of great courage and kindness. The public response seems to me to have been far more kind than unkind. The internet sites where people put their comments have been full of comments, often poorly spelt, not very literate, people who are perhaps not very used to expressing themselves in words, but who really want to be fair and to be doing the right thing, and have refused to be drawn into the concept of blaming an entire community for the acts of two people. There's been a lot of goodness out there. Yesterday, 1,500 members of the EDL marched, some of their outliers calling for mosques to be burnt to the ground. At the same time, 5,000 people met at the mosque in South Wimbledon to pray for the family of Lee Rigby. We know that good doesn't always outweigh evil but I did feel yesterday in a sense evil was outnumbered. This building where we meet on Sunday mornings, during the week it is a very multi-faith building. It's used as a liberal synagogue, it's used for Sufi meetings, it's used by Buddhists. Any religious group that is based on acceptance and love is welcome to use this building. And I like to think that there is a kind of echo of this use of the building when we come here on Sunday morning, that we can feel this inclusiveness here. For the next hour, I hope that this building will feel like a safe and welcoming space uh, where our worship is based on acceptance and love for other people. The opening words I have this morning, now here's something you don't hear in churches very often, our words of Russell Brand. To truly demonstrate defiance in the face of this sad violence, we must be loving and compassionate to one another. Let's look beyond our superficial and fleeting differences. The murderers want angry patriots to desecrate mosques and perpetuate violence. How futile their actions will seem if we instead leave flowers at each other's places of worship. Let's reach out in the spirit of love and humanity and connect to one another. Perhaps we will then see what is really behind this conflict, this division, this hatred, and make that our focus. I'm going to light the chalice as Unitarian communities all over the world do. And I like this is our little unifying feature that brings us all together, but at the same time we're doing do just this. And some very short words from Martin Luther King. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that.
1: This is a a reading from Wilde written by Jay Griffiths. For the human mind, the crossing from air down into water has powerful effects. Unable to smell, losing accustomed gravity and losing our air hearing It is surprisingly difficult to carry memory across the border. All the petty concerns are left to the squabbling gulls. The air world is hard to recall on the instant of merging into the salt water world we knew before. It is enigmatic that memory can meet amnesia here, how completely and instantly we forget the world of air. Our corrugated corner of earth and our dry lives but seem to remember opaquely, as if memory coursed through the salty veins that the ocean was once our home. The water's apparent silence is its first sublimity, and the tranquillity of the underwater world makes your psyche respond in an instant. No ancestry, no history, just the mind, finally come home to the eternal now. Silence first, then sound. You hear as if with your body, there are melodies here, there is music in the mind that even breathing hesitates to interrupt. Diving for the first time is like hearing music for the first time. Not a piece of music, but the entire category music. Oceans are full of creatures chasing one another to kill for hunger. But it's hard to imagine a clownfish taking a machete to a damselfish because one preferred a coral of crescent formation and the other knelt fishwise, wise dipping at an altar of crossed coral branches. Underwater, little intrudes from the dry world. Things seem to stop at the sea-light ceiling of the world's surface and dancing light like moonlight shining upward into a pale liquid gold. Underwater, mind belongs. Our earliest perceptions, as both creatures and individual fetus, are of gentle waters. All mind began here memory, perception, fear, and desire. Ocean is full of wild mind. It melts the separation of mind and body and loosens the distinction between self and the world. I'm searching for a word. I want a word that would carry a meaning of an element touching the mind, of water speaking to a dream. Whales have emotional intelligence, and the sheer complexity of humpback whale song suggests memory, thought and profound intelligence. But the intelligence we see may be only part of the whole. They may have jokes. They may have a thousand terms for different types of spins and different reasons to spin. Compacts may applaud new songs or may be singing parts of a song cycle a thousand years old. They may have verbs we don't. They may be attempting to make up new terms for new things they have never needed to think of before. Exploitation, perhaps, or extinction. They may have named emotions that we have not yet identified. Transcendent and transparent surges of happiness or being engulfed in sea sorrow fear. There may be terms for wildness and for freedom, the new words for prison, which they have only needed since the capture of do- in areas. How many terms do they have for water, currents, waves? Pods of whales sing, jamming away for a lifetime, singing the truest blues, the mind of the ocean sung in ultramarine jazz, a true rhapsody in blue. A humpback song can be funny, quick as a joke, followed by a low string of cello, long notes of infinite sadness, searching, longing. They can sing around, a catch of melody repeated, spun up to the skies and spiraling down again. Then spinning up and out and then inward and down. All music, all water is here.
0: I've got two readings here. Um, The first one is a reflection that we've lost touch with any concept that works for us of eternity and the second reading perhaps um, finds one solution to that. So first of all I'm going to read from a book called Seven Tenths by James Hamilton Patterson. They say death has changed for modern man that it has been deconstructed and, like him, become postmodern. Sometimes, when the day is bright and blue and hot enough to be quite empty, and the rocks shimmer in the sun, the conviction comes that at their heart, human societies are just elaborate fabrications for suppressing a knowledge of death. Conspiracies sufficiently complex and beguiling that the dark secret of our own mortality no longer obtrudes. On the morning wind, we seem to hear the creak of a million treadmills, the squeak of rowing machines, the trilling and drilling of an endless aerobics class. It is the dawn chorus of anxiety. A kind of insurance is being enacted, that private public investment in keeping fit and being seen to be keeping fit. Apart from exacting its own toll in humorless tedium, it turns ill health into a personal failure, such that death is seen as just deserts for not having taken the trouble to be sufficiently alive. And there can be no magic left in prophecies of paradise, that all life was held to have become in a garden, and if we are good, we'll likewise end in one, convinces nobody. The majority of the world's people are now town dwellers, to whom rural metaphors are no longer instinctive. The very word paradise comes from Persian via Greek, And it means a park. What could the modern world offer by way of a matching, tranquil and timeless vision? Are we to recline forever in some leafy municipal square where the sun filtering through the trees dapples us in a bearable radiance? Where the traffic noise has ceased? Where litter-free paths are strolled by the righteous eating ambrosial hamburgers? Mm -hmm. Nature has fallen beneath our power and in doing so has left us without an image of heaven. And now I'm going to read um, A Meditation on the Sea by American Jewish writer Phyllis Chesler. When in doubt or trouble, but also in times of joy, I always return to the sea to put things in perspective. In America, only the elements seem eternal and as such afford splendid relief. Elements have the power to transport me out of myself. Perhaps the sea is my confessional. Always I come down smelling of the city and secular anxiety, grind over with it. The sea washes all that away. I am reborn in her salty beginning. Before I see her, I can hear her, smell her, taste her in the air. She is misty salty on my tongue, pleasantly rank in my nostrils, a rhythmic pounding in my ears. It never fails. I am always slightly overwhelmed each and every time I first catch sight of the sea. It is so heart-stoppingly enormous and yet utterly familiar. It brings one back to childhood. No, to a world far older than that, to the very origin of our species. When we left, we took the ocean with us. It is in our every cell. We are, as biologist Carl Safina writes, Soft vessels of seawater, 70% of our bodies is water, the same percent that covers the earth's surface. We are wrapped around an ocean within. In America, only the elements remind us that life is short and therefore precious. Only the elements truly comfort me. Sky, sea, stars, all were here long before human beings first built campfires. With any luck, they may still be here at the end of time. The elements test your metal against natural forces. The sea reminds us we have to take what comes, as it comes. Some disasters cannot be avoided. That luck or fate is everything but skill and courage count too. Expect the unexpected and prepare to ride it out. Pray, die and live. Time is but the stream I go fishing in, wrote Henry David Thoreau. I also fish in other, more metaphoric waters. Like sailors and fishermen, I have premonitions, and I act on them. Despite the dangers and the high risk of failure, the wearing boom and bust cycles of the writing life, I too keep returning to the sea. I have travelled through deep waters, usually alone, my entire life. So I'm used to it. It's too late to turn back. Too late to learn another way of being in the world. I am unanchored now, heading off once again into uncharted waters. My mother recently died. The sea is my mother now, the surf her heartbeat. For the moment, it is all I need. Full fathom five, thy father lies. Of his bones are coral made Those are pearls that were his eyes Nothing of him that doth fade But doth suffer a sea change Into something rich and strange Sea nymphs hourly ring his knell Ding dong, hark, now I hear them Ding dong bell. Thank you for that. It's worth worth speaking English just to hear lines like that. It's easy to forget to forget how long the human right race has been around in this world. Creatures resembling human beings have been around for a million years. Quite recognisable modern style human beings. Have been around for about 70,000 years. The first fragments of writing that we have are only about 5,000 years old, which means that only 8% of human history has been recorded in any written form at all. Long, long before writing was invented, the human race was a seafaring race. Our ancestors were surprisingly skilled sailors. You might have been taught at school that Australia was discovered in 1606, but in fact it was discovered 50,000 years earlier by sailors in small boats travelling from Asia. You might have been told that Christopher Columbus, or possibly Leif Erikson, discovered America. 17,000 years earlier, people settled the coast of California, again having crossed oceans in small boats. Our world is 70% ocean. Our ancestors grew up next to those oceans. Surely, although we have no written record, our ancestral mythology would have centered around those seas and oceans. We are coastal creatures. Marine exploration seems to have taken a different path in two different hemispheres. In Europe, um, the Atlantic and Mediterranean exploration is sometimes referred to, people referred to as coasters. Understandably, boats would follow the coasts. For many hundreds of years, after they could work out where they were in a sense of north to south, just by looking at the position of the sun, they had no way of calculating how far they were in terms of longitude, which meant if they headed out west across the Atlantic Ocean, almost immediately they had no way of knowing where they were. They had no way of knowing how to keep themselves alive in terms of nutrition. If a boat was away from a coast for too long, sometimes everybody on it died from lack of vitamin C. Maps were often very accurate in showing the construction of an individual bay, but became wildly inaccurate when they tried to show a whole sea or ocean. They had no way of conceiving them as a whole. Sailors normally refused to learn how to swim. It was felt that if you fell off a boat, you were going to die, and if you learned to swim, it would only prolong the process in an unpleasant way. Pacific sailors were completely different. You can see, if you lived on a small island, there was absolutely no point in sailing around the coast. You would very quickly get back to where you started. Instead of viewing the sea as an emptiness that separated lands, they regarded it as part of their land. It joined rather than separated. European sailors regarded the open ocean as having no identifiable features at all. Pacific sailors could memorise long oceanic routes in a way that is mysterious. Um, It's been described as they would recognise the feeling of the sea under their boats. They carried no navigational instruments. If they'd made maps, they were in the sense of teaching and historical part of their culture, they didn't carry the them on the boats, they had no concept that you would follow a map. A map was like a diary, it was a record of what you'd done. If they felt lost, they would simply retrace their steps until they felt they'd found themselves and then head off again. Unlike the European traders who were entirely driven either by trade or in some cases by the desire to set up religious outlying communities... They genuinely wanted to know what was on the other side of the ocean. They went with no other motivation than curiosity. Pacific anthropologist eppel oh, Hang on, hard name to pronounce. eppel Howofi, um, passionately defending his homeland from the p- perception it was nothing but small and insignificant islands, wrote, if we look at the myths, legends and oral traditions and cosmologies of the people of Oceania, It becomes evident that they did not conceive of their world in microscopic proportions. Their universe comprised not only land surfaces but the surrounding ocean as far as they could traverse it and the heavens above with their hierarchies of powerful gods and named stars and constellations which people could rely on to guide their ways across the seas. The world of our ancestors was a large sea, full of places to explore, to make their homes in, to breed generations of seafarers like themselves. People raised this environment were at home with the sea. They played in it as soon as they could walk. They worked in it. They fought on it. They developed great skills for navigating their waters and the spirit to traverse the large gaps that separated their island groups theirs was a large world. There seems a sense in which the Western world became separated from the deep sea, hostile to it, fearful of it, avoiding it, except when there was a valuable prospect such as trade routes involved. But it's fatally easy to get into this, what I think of as dances dances with wolves mindset, where cultures most different to ours are overvalued, no, ours are undervalued were considered to have somehow had inferior cultures, the very fact that to the European ancestors the ocean was so unknowable and so menacing led to its own mythology which is valuable in its own right Um, one, one of these mythologies was that the ocean was a place where things would disappear this was literally true Major oceans are extremely deep. More people have been into space than have explored the bottom of the ocean. Almost none of it has been explored to this day. Part of the haunting fascination that people have with the Titanic is that it is 12,500 feet down on the ocean bed. It is utterly inaccessible in terms of this dream that people will bring it to the surface again. Some staterooms are believed to be intact down there, but not for much longer. In a relatively short time, there'll be nothing there except fragments. It's breaking up, and there's no way of stopping that. Would we want to stop it? Somewhere under the ocean are the fragments of countless ships, planes, all sorts of crafts. Before sonar was invented, objects lost at sea might as well have fallen out of time. So utterly did they disappear. No wonder we devised myths about sunken cities, of Atlantis, which Plato said, um, there existed a confederation of kings of great and marvellous power, now all drowned and lost forever. In Cornwall and Brittany, they talk of the city of Heese, also under the waves, but in its day, the most beautiful and impressive city in Europe. There are drowned villages where church bells are supposed to ring, where the inhabitants return and walk, walk the land on a certain day in the year, where treasures beyond counting are lying on the seabed, if only we could see them. There's also as mythology of the sea as an instrument of cleansing. The sea rises and scours everything clean, then falls again. Now, Noah's Ark... Um, is, I think, perhaps the favourite story of what you might call angry atheists. They are always furious at the idea that God would drown everybody in the world and the animals, even kittens and near cats and nice animals, because he wasn't being worshipped enough. Now, because this is a Unitarian church, I don't think anybody's going to pick a fight with me if I say I think the story of Noah's Ark is a myth. Um, it, And surely the focus of the myth was meant to be redemptive rather than on the destruction. Um, For those of you who have computers, God's creation had become contaminated. It wasn't working properly, so he rebooted it, cleaned the disks, and started again. I think the story is meant, we're meant to perceive the, the world that Noah and his Ark inherited as clean and renewed and perfect. I like to think of the Ark as representing the human heart. We hold in our heart all that we most value. The people, the memories, music, the art, the writing, everything that we passionately love. And sometimes our outward lives might, whether by choice or against our will, be subject to some transforming flood it might be very uncomfortable, it might be very difficult to live through but we protect the things in our hearts that we need to protect and then we can let them go again when the world has righted itself when you um, volunteer to do a service at this church you have to give the service title a long time in advance long before you've actually got anything to say so I gave the uh, service title and I thought well, I hope I find something to say about the sea And um, this is perhaps the first service I've ever done where 99% of the material I found I had to leave out because the mythology of the sea is almost infinite. The oceans have inspired just an incalculable quantity of music, poetry, art, scholarship, exploration, courage, love, fear, mythology and science. You can only skim the very surface of it unless you're going to sit here for a week. They can join people together, separate them, lead to their deaths, save people, conceal things, protect things, cleanse and corrupt things. They have hardly been explored in a world where it sometimes seems that the big journeys have all been done. I'd like to offer thanks that the oceans are there in all their mystery and wonder and for all the aspects of them. Thank you for listening. Teach us the wisdom of water, that life will have its falls, sometimes like a mountain stream tumbling over round stones, sometimes like threads of rain spun from clouds, sometimes in breathtaking cascades. Teach us the wisdom of water, that each fall is finite, each ends in contact with earth, May we remember that we in this community are as earth to each other. We cushion each other's falls, lessening the impact, supporting one another through hard times. Teach us the wisdom of water, that we will rise again from each fall. Sometimes like mist breathed from neighbourhood trees, sometimes like a geyser shouting from the earth, sometimes as imperceptibly as evaporation from the sea. Amen.